This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection, like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that actually unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or Turndown Service, that's an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. Very eco-friendly. They're all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice, and they're backed by 24 protection. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. A huge thank you to Prudential, along with financial wellness expert Alexandra Drain, who's traveling across America to learn more about the changing financial landscape in a brand new project called The State of Us. Fewer than half of us believe we're on track to meet our financial goals. Listen as Prudential talks with real people to uncover the challenges that are getting in the way of financial wellness. To learn more about the financial challenges facing America, visit prudential.com slash state of us. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. And hi to all of our listeners. Before we begin today's show, we wanted to share a little news. After two and a half years of making this podcast, Brian and I have decided that today will be our last episode, at least for a while. Think of it as we'll see you later and not necessarily goodbye. More of a of an au revoir, if you will. <laughs> We're taking a break because we have not bigger fish to fry, but other fish to fry. Right, Brian? This is true. Um, Katie's production company is taking the world by storm, producing tons of shows, both online and uh, in other platforms. 
I am trying to figure out my plans for 2019, but um, we've Fear loved, not, uh, dear listeners. Fear not. <laughs> you will hear from us again in the not-so-distant future in some way, shape, or form. And I, for one, have loved doing this. I'm such a huge fan of my colleague, Brian Goldsmith, and I've loved spending this time together with him. And of course, our incredible group here at Stitcher has been a real joy to work with. And so we're going to miss being together every week. But again, we've got a lot of things up our sleeves. So two words, stay tuned. And working with Katie has been a joy and a privilege every single day, and I will I will miss that, although I am very confident we will stay in touch quite frequently in the weeks and months ahead. Um, but we're not done quite yet. Uh, we still have a very special show today. This is part two of our look back at the year 2018. This week, we're talking about the year in climate change with former Vice President Al Gore, someone I admire enormously. And then we'll talk about the year in news and politics with someone else I really like, Michael Barbaro, who hosts The Daily from The New York Times. We're big fans of The Daily. Meanwhile, we're starting with the vice president. And of course, I have known Al Gore for a long time. I think I first covered him back in 1992. Jesus, I'm old, aren't I? During his terms as a representative and then senator from Tennessee, he was already passionate about the environment and very interested in climate change. In fact, he published his first book on the environment back in 1992, the same year he and Bill Clinton were elected to the White House. Of course, after eight years as vice president, Gore ran for president in the infamous or famous 2000 election against George W. Bush. Gore won the popular vote but lost in the Electoral College. Some say he lost in the Supreme Court, but uh, we're not going to go there. Um, after that debacle, Gore left politics for good and really focused on his passionate advocacy on the climate issue. And that's why in 2006, he released a book and documentary, both titled An Inconvenient Truth, that detailed the impending climate disaster. And in 2007, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his environmental work. In the years since 2000, Al Gore's also been very involved in Silicon Valley. Tech has been a huge passion of his. He's on the board of Apple, among other things. And he's also founded the Climate Reality Project, which is a big nonprofit devoted to solving what he calls the climate crisis. So he's been very busy, and we're going to be talking to him primarily about the environment. First, I wanted to know, given the devastating California wildfires and hurricanes on the eastern seaboard that we saw this year, what role has climate change played in 2018? Well, uh, the impacts of the climate crisis are growing uh, much more severe uh, and much more frequent. And the latest uh, report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, got the attention of millions of people around the world. And it was followed by the, the devastating uh, hurricanes you mentioned and these uh, incredible fires this year that have been so devastating uh, in California and in other parts of Western uh, North America and around the world, by the way. Uh, these are 
global events. Uh, every night on the TV news is like a nature hike through the Book of Revelation now. And it's I true. think that people are, uh, are, are responding to Mother Nature's uh, advocacy uh, far more than to the advocacy of uh, those of us who are, are activists on this issue, but we're trying to do our part as well. I think that the entrenched opposition to really solving this crisis uh, still comes from uh, uh, dark money provided by large carbon polluters, the American Petroleum Institute, the Koch brothers, uh, some of the uh, large oil companies, uh, even some who publicly proclaim they've changed their minds and are not uh, fighting action anymore whenever there's a a serious proposal. They pour in the money. But overall, we are seeing a tremendous momentum for the solutions to the climate crisis. Some of it's uh, due to technological advances, uh, the, the stunning uh, reductions in the cost of electricity from the sun and the wind, and stunning reductions in the cost of batteries and electric vehicles and all kinds of uh, efficiency improvements. This is uh, really changing uh, the global picture. Sometimes I get confused, Al, when I see these fires and I watch these hurricanes, and I, and I get confused about the direct link between climate change and these catastrophic events. What is the link? I mean, can you say that these wildfires are because of climate change? Here is the connection, Katie. The accumulated amount of man-made global warming pollution in the thin shell of atmosphere surrounding our planet, you know, it stays, we're putting 110 million tons uh, every day into the atmosphere as if it's an open sewer. And it stays there for more than a thousand years, uh, the majority of it. And the accumulated amount of man-made global warming pollution is now trapping as much extra heat energy every day as would be released by 500,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every 24 hours, day in and day out. That extra heat energy evaporates a lot more water vapor off the oceans into the sky, and the so-called atmospheric rivers uh, carry it over the land, and so we get these massive downpours, uh, four times more common than in 1980 even. And the same extra heat uh, pulls the moisture out of the soil and the vegetation. Mm -hmm. So you get uh, both uh, droughts and drying trees and dead trees uh, that are kindling for these fires, uh, and you get much more powerful uh, hurricanes and much larger downpours. So, Mr. Vice President, I have a hard time calling you Al. I, I wanted to step back and talk about why we're in the position that we're in at this moment. You mentioned the Koch brothers and some of the kind of carbon-polluting interests. Do you basically hold them responsible for the reason it's been so hard to convince the public of the magnitude of this? Well, I think they're one of the major reasons, yes. Um, the, the large carbon polluters have spent uh, a couple of billion dollars uh, in sowing uh, confusion and false doubt. They took the playbook of the tobacco companies and used some of the same PR firms and lobbyists. The tobacco companies hired uh, actors and 
dress them up as doctors and put them in front of cameras and teleprompters to falsely uh, reassure people that uh, there was no medical reason to avoid smoking cigarettes. Well, uh, decades later, uh, they've documented how the large carbon polluters spend enormous amounts of money uh, to intentionally confuse Americans and paralyze uh, legislative bodies to prevent uh, action. They're losing this battle, but they are delaying action still. Uh, The the grassroots opinion, more than two-thirds of the American people know this uh, is real. Uh, College young Republicans, by the way, are now uh, saying uh, their party has to change as well. A lot of businesses are providing leadership. But, uh, you know, uh, in Tennessee, the farmers have an old saying that if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you can be pretty sure it didn't get there by itself. Yeah. Uh, and and if, if you see uh, persistent uh, levels of climate denial in the U.S., unlike in any other country— you can be pretty sure that didn't happen by itself either. It's very hard to find an established, uh, much less respected uh, scientific uh, voice that disagrees with the consensus. It, it, the level of uh, certainty it, it exceeds that linking smoking to lung cancer. And it almost approaches uh, the certainty about the existence of gravity. But on the other hand, there was a Gallup poll earlier this year that showed that only 18% of Republicans believe that global warming will pose a serious threat in their lifetime. And and this country elected a climate change denier as president. So it seems like the experts haven't really made the sale here. Well, let me unpack that, that, that question. Uh, first of all, of course, as you know, there's uh, – the fabled uh, tribalism in our politics now. And there is, of course, uh, something else at work. And when there is a a general uh, uneasiness about uh, the state of the world and a general feeling of doubt, then uh, that that creates uh, conditions for uh, a demagogue to come in with with falsehoods and, uh, and false expansive promises. And I think we've certainly seen that. And we've seen a wave of populist authoritarianism in other countries as well. Part of it is the global financial crisis in 2008. uh, uh, And I think that was a real uh, trigger for uh, the the real uh, disaffection and and hostility against elites and experts of any stripe. Uh, I mean, you know, you can go deeper into this, but I think that's a, a fair summation. And add to that this issue of the climate crisis is inherently complicated, and it's global in scope, and we're not used to thinking in those terms. And it plays out over uh, longer time periods than our political system is used to dealing with. And right. so, and 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 a final element would be just sort of garden variety denial. It's hard to think about difficult threats that uh, are scary and solutions that are now readily available but seem to require overcoming the inertia in, uh, in our devotion to patterns that have existed for a long time. It also seems to me, Al, that people have a hard time dealing with problems that are not necessarily immediate. And that's one of the problems, I think, with climate change. Similarly, the causality. Sometimes people don't understand that events like wildfires and flooding and hurricane is seriously exacerbated by climate change. 
Yeah, well, I think that uh, part of human nature is that we are more prepared to respond immediately to the kinds of threats that our ancestors survived. You know, a, a, a snake, uh, other humans with weapons. Uh, th these are the things that we're hardwired to respond to immediately. A and when we face a much greater danger that has to be uh, perceived with the assistance of our analytical capabilities, we're capable of that too. And we've demonstrated that uh, uh, throughout history, but it takes more effort. And in fact, Al, I was going to mention, I recently read that the ozone layer was closing up because of actions that were taken to do just that. And that is an example that shows when we take action, things can change, right? Yes, absolutely. And back in the mid-'80s, uh, the scientific community uh, made this alarming discovery that uh, a certain kinds of chemicals that had only been used for about 50 years were destroying that stratospheric ozone layer that filters out the UV radiation and keeps it so that it only gives a sunburn instead of killing us. That, that it was uh, deteriorating rapidly. And within one year, Margaret Thatcher uh, in the United Kingdom, who had a chemistry uh, degree, enlisted the cooperation of uh, her, her dear friend, uh, President Ronald Reagan. They took action, and now we are on the way to solving that crisis. Now, here's the difference, Katie. Those chemicals that were causing that catastrophe were a very tiny part of the global economy. Uh, the companies making it fought against it, but they, but they were defeated. And now, uh, the problem is CO2 and methane and other gases, but the, main, the heart of it is CO2. Uh, and that comes from the fuels that still provide 80% of all the energy in the global economy. And there are alternatives for them as well but there are vested interests and established patterns of behavior that are more difficult to change and overcome than it was uh, when we successfully uh, solved the stratospheric ozone uh, layer problem. Clearly, President Trump is not on the same page as you are, to put it mildly. Here's what he said not too long ago on 60 Minutes about global warming. Do you still think that climate change is a hoax? Look, I think something's happening, something's changing, and it'll change back again. I don't think it's a hoax. I think there's probably a difference, but it, I don't know that it's man-made. I will say this. Um, I don't want to give trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't want to lose millions and millions of jobs. I don't want to be put at a disadvantage. I'm not denying climate change. But it could very well go back. You know, we're talking about well, over millions of years. It. They say that we had hurricanes that were far worse than what we just had with Michael. Who says that? They say. You mean well, the people, people say? On the people phone? say that in the. Yeah, but what about the scientists who say it's worse than ever? You'd have to show me the scientists because they have a very big political agenda, Leslie. I can't Look, bring them. Scientists in. also have a political agenda. What has your reaction been to the president's position on this? <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, if you want to go into the Trump cul-de-sac, we may not escape from it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, 
when every, every time a new outrage comes along, I have to download some existing outrage to make room for the new outrage. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, just to take a, a, a couple of points from his comment, uh, that it, it will change back. No, it won't change back. Uh, no, uh, because we're putting 110 million extra tons every day uh, and uh, into the sky and adding it to this uh, blanket of heat-trapping gases that is causing the problem. Uh, it can go back if we change our behavior. Now, uh, <laughs> the, the idea that uh, the scientists have some political agenda, it, it, it's an insult to these uh, uh, scientists. They do it uh, on volunteer time. Uh, they won the Nobel Prize. They continue their work. They're, they're, they're among the most respected women and men uh, uh, in their fields uh, in countries all around the world. And by the way, as I said before, they've been proven right. What they predicted uh, decades ago is playing out on our television screens and in the lives of people living in cities that are being hit hard right now. So um, this is a willful denial. This is a global crisis. You know, the president set up this prototypical battle between industry and jobs on the one hand and the environment on the other. Is that really the choice that we're facing here? No, the, cho the choice uh, actually... Switching to renewable energy, that saves us money. And, and by the way, it creates jobs. The fastest growing job in the United States of America today, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, is solar installer. Those jobs are growing nine times faster than average job growth. The second fastest growing job is wind turbine technician. We're in the early stages of a sustainability revolution uh, all around the world that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution, but the speed of the digital revolution. Electricity from solar and wind is now cheaper in the majority of locations around the world than electricity from burning fossil fuels. And the fossil fuel electricity keeps getting more expensive and also produces local air pollution, which kills almost 10 million people a year. Air pollution is the new smoking. Whereas the uh, renewable electricity is pollution-free creates jobs, makes our economy more efficient, and it keeps coming down in price year after year after year. This is the future. Uh, and, you know, we don't have a shortage of fossil fuels, but as the oil minister of Saudi Arabia said in his warning to the king of Saudi Arabia uh, decades ago, remember, the Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stones. It ended because something better came along. And that's the point we're at now in our energy and transportation uh, and, and, and built environment. So per your point earlier, I don't want to move into the Trump cul-de-sac, but we, we have to stay there for a little while just because obviously he's the president of the United States. You met with him when he was president-elect during the transition. It was reported that Jared and Ivanka helped set that up. Do you think Jared and Ivanka, who seem to be more sympathetic to your views, have exercised any influence in the administration? Yes, obviously they have had uh, a good deal of uh, influence. I, I, I think that where his buddies uh, in, the, in the carbon pollution community are concerned, I, I think they take uh, priority over 
uh, everyone else when it comes to this issue. I think that's uh, abundantly obvious. I mean, look at the people he's uh, appointed. I, you know, I think there must be a grifter's tender out there where these people find one another. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, you, you, you look... I mean, just look at this uh, acting attorney general, for God's sake. I mean, you could not, I mean, the classic cliche is if you wrote this uh, in a novel, your editor would say, no, it's just not believable. Are you Sasquatch, time travel? Uh, I mean, please. As we're airing this, Al, you'll be at the annual meeting of the group that produced the Paris Climate Agreement. And it's been more than a year since the president pulled out of that agreement. Some people minimize this by saying it's a non-binding deal. What have the real consequences been of America's withdrawal from the accord? Well, first of all, under U.S. law and international uh, uh, law, the first day on which the U.S. can actually withdraw from the agreement happens to be the day after the next presidential election uh, in the middle of November uh, 2020. Uh, and, and so he, he can make a speech and declare his intention, but the U.S. is still legally bound. And while part of it is voluntary, there are also binding uh, provisions in the agreement. And, and a new president, by the way, could simply give 30 days notice and we're back in the agreement. But perhaps more importantly, the U.S., in spite of Donald Trump, is on track to exceed the commitments uh, that were made by our country in the Paris Agreement. That's partly because big states like California and New York and 15 others and hundreds of cities and uh, many of the large businesses, uh, particularly consumer-facing businesses, they're still in the Paris Agreement and they've stepped up their efforts to exceed their commitments. Uh, California just passed a a binding law that they're going to go 100% carbon-free uh, in 2045. Colorado is now going to join them uh, in, by 2040. So many cities are going uh, 100% renewable. I was just uh, in Atlanta, and they've made that commitment. If Atlanta can do it, any city can do it. And that gives us real hope. Yeah, it does. Uh, I, now, I don't, I don't want to, uh, to risk uh, sounding uh, Pollyannish because the truth is uh, the problem is getting worse faster than we are responding to it. But the new Congress that comes in uh, uh, to office in in January uh, is going to make a a huge difference. Uh, The new uh, Democrats picked up seven governor's offices and uh, many hundreds of uh, state legislative uh, seats. Uh, We're seeing commitments uh, on climate action from many of these new office holders. So there's, there's ample room for legitimate optimism But we have to retain our sense of urgency because the danger is very high. It's very real. It's growing. And in order to solve this crisis in time, we have to step up the changes in laws and policies. You know, one person who's not quite as optimistic as you are is Bill McKibben, who recently wrote a a long piece for The New Yorker that's very powerful and affecting about climate change. And he basically argues that even if Paris were followed. It's wildly inadequate to the challenge and that a future of negative and even catastrophic consequences is virtually inevitable. So has your optimism been tempered at all by 
the events we've seen over the last several years? Well, uh, you know, Bill does a great job. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work. But but if you look at that piece in The New Yorker, you'll see that he carved out a section for Hope uh, himself and articulated it. Uh, and where the inadequacy of the Paris Agreement is concerned, uh, I have uh, said that many times. But again, here is a, a really important uh, provision in the Paris Agreement uh, that uh, ought to change the way uh, pessimists think about it. Uh, one of the binding provisions is that every five years, all of the 195 nations that have signed it have an obligation to review their progress and upgrade their ambitions. And in light of the continuing cost reductions in carbon-free energy and efficiency improvements and electric transportation and so forth, uh, the first five-year review period, which will begin next year and culminate in in a 2020 conference of the parties, is likely to see significant increases in ambition with much steeper cuts in greenhouse gas pollution pledged by the major emitters. So it's certainly true that the Paris Agreement taken as a whole is inadequate, of course, but it it was designed to build a foundation from which stronger commitments can come uh, in the years following the implementation of the agreement. And that process uh, has already started. Some nations have already upgraded their commitments. And in 2020, I think you're likely to see a major global increase uh, in the pledged actions by countries around the world. Bill McKibben sort of bemoaned the fact that world leaders and presidents in our country didn't intervene enough and said that uh, what was a theoretical threat has become a fierce daily reality. I know that in 2013, you said President Obama failed to use the bully pulpit to make the case for bold action on climate change. That was a direct quote. Do you think he could have and should have done more? Well, I think you have to differentiate, uh, Katie, between uh, President Obama's uh, record in his first four years and in his second four years. He deserves credit, uh, as I've written in his first four years, for dramatically increasing the mileage uh, standard requirements for cars and trucks and for the green stimulus elements of his economic stimulus plan, which, which made a difference. The White House might well have done more to uh, secure passage uh, of major legislation that passed the House in the in the early summer uh, of 2009, uh, which failed in the Senate. But in his second term, uh, he built on his beginnings uh, in the first term and really did use the bully pulpit quite significantly. And, and he played a major role in securing the success of the Paris Agreement. And one year before the Paris Agreement, he achieved an historic uh, binational commitment between the U.S. and China, which laid the foundation for the success uh, in Paris. So I, I think uh, you look at the balance of his uh, eight years in the White House, I think that he made major, major contributions. A number of top retired Republicans have signed on to a carbon tax as the right way to deal with climate change. Can you quickly explain what that means and tell us what you think of that approach? 
Well, I've proposed a, 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 a carbon tax uh, for 30 years now. So yes, I'm very much in favor of it for the simple reason that our economy now counts uh, pollution uh, to have a value of zero. We, we ignore it. Uh, and, you know, the term of art you've heard is externalities, which basically means uh, just forget about it and pretend it doesn't exist. But, but uh, that's obviously insane, uh, particularly uh, when, when uh, we're putting 110 million tons of it every day into the sky. Uh, and, and one of the ways to remedy uh, the economy's uh, blindness to this pollution is to put a price on it. Now, having said that, Katie, uh, the political difficulty in enacting any kind of uh, taxation increase uh, is well known uh, and impressive. And partly as a result, uh, many people uh, took a different approach with the so-called cap and trade uh, mechanism. Uh, that's now being used in the European Union. It's being used by China. They implemented it this year. It is an indirect price on carbon and achieve, can achieve uh, the same goals if it's uh, skillfully uh, and strongly uh, enforced. And I think the world is probably moving in that direction. Uh, I actually uh, support both a carbon tax and uh, a carbon trading or cap-and-trade uh, regime. But we also need... Um, regulatory uh, changes, requirements such as telling utilities they have to have growing percentages of their electricity from renewable sources by a date certain. Uh, many countries around the world have now enacted laws uh, requiring the, the legal cessation of any uh, sales of internal combustion engines, mandating a, a shift to electric vehicles. Sweden, uh, India has announced that by 2030, no new internal combustion cars and trucks can be sold. Uh, and that's the, an example of a, uh, of a law and a regulation approach uh, that can accomplish more very quickly. But yes, I support a carbon tax uh, and a cap and trade program. Mr. Vice President, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the new Democratic Socialist Congresswoman from New York, led a protest in Nancy Pelosi's office to create a Select Committee on Climate Change, which is a position that Pelosi has said that she shares. What was your reaction to the decision to protest her, of all people? And do you think she ought to be the next Speaker of the House? First of all, I really welcome the energy and activism of this new incoming group of Democrats in the Congress I, I mean, I like that uh, select committee. I, I don't think the opposition to it, by the way, was anything more than um, the committee chairs with the substantive jurisdiction wanting to sink their teeth into it. But I'll let them uh, sort that out. As far as the race for Speaker of the House is concerned, I'm a longtime friend and admirer of Nancy Pelosi. And in my experience, uh, she's been one of the great speakers of the last century. She knows how to knit her caucus together and count votes well. I don't know how that race is going to turn out, but if I had a vote, I would vote for her. I want to leave people with some hope as we enter 2019. And I think some people feel powerless. They see these problems. They see the government not acting enough. And they wonder, what can we do? So what one piece of advice would you give the average American if he or she wants to 
uh, contribute to finding a solution for global warming? Well, as important as it is to, to, to change light bulbs and take those other uh, actions that each individual can take, it's more important to change the laws and the policies. So my number one recommendation is to not only register to vote and vote, but reclaim your voice as a citizen of this country and become politically active. There is hope in action. And I get a tremendous amount of hope from the millions of people who are now really engaged in grassroots activism. I train climate activists all over this country and all over the world. And what I'm seeing is an upsurge of enthusiasm and energy and demands for progress and change that is ultimately not going to be denied. So be, be a part of those who are taking action as citizens of this country. Well, that's good advice. And Brian, you and I, well, meet you at the next protest. Actually, I would like to get out there and be more vocal about some of these issues. You know, as journalists, I think we always shy away a bit. But, you know, in my old age, Al, I'm like, to hell with it. I'm going to speak my mind a little bit more. In the middle of March, we're having a three-day mass training in Atlanta, um, and they're, they're, these trainings uh, really motivate people. You'll learn everything you need to know about the causes of the climate crisis and the solutions for the climate crisis and communications and advo- advocacy uh, skills. And um, one or both of you ought to consider coming down and uh, covering that and going through it. That would be fun. And when people say, what are you doing these days? I can say, I'm a climate change activist. What are you doing? There you go. Yeah, that's a good question. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, Al Gore, you're you're such a you're such a minch, Al, coming to us from Nashville. Well, thank you, Brian, and thank you, Katie, and thank you for the overly generous and kind words, Katie. And I hope to see you both in person again soon. I hope so too. A happy New Year. Coming up, we're going to look back this year in news and politics with the one and only Michael Barbaro of the New York Times Daily Podcast. That's right after this. Support for today's show comes from Thrive Market, an online marketplace that's on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. You get access to thousands of the best-selling organic foods and natural products at 25 to 50% below traditional retail prices. From organic almond butter to lavender essential oil, both products I enjoy, by the way, Thrive Market carries everything you need. They have pantry staples, cleaning products, sweet treats, the best snacks, and much more at such affordable prices. I got a big box from Thrive Market the other day. It included gluten-free bread and almond butter and all sorts of great crackers and snack foods, and I'm loving it all. And as they say, at very reasonable prices. So with our special link, Thrive Market is giving you an extra 25% off your first purchase plus a free 30-day trial. That's 25% off the already low prices that Thrive Market offers. Just go to thrivemarket.com slash Couric to access this terrific discount. So here's a new concept in eyewear, contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and fashion-forward. Glasses that can be viewed kind of as a fashion accessory, but should not cost as much as a plane ticket or a new iPhone. 
With Warby Parker, glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses. For every pair you buy, a pair is distributed to someone in need. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door where you can try them on in the comfort of your own home, get feedback from friends, family, your cat, the mailman, whoever. You can try the frames for five days before sending them back using a free prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. It's 100% free. It's so easy, even I can do it. And I had a wonderful experience getting a new pair of glasses through Warby Parker. So head to warbyparker.com slash Katie to order your free home try-ons today. Choose the five frames you'd like to try on, mail the frames back, choose your favorite pair to have your prescription added to, and order. It's really simple. Visit warbyparker.com slash Katie to begin your free home try-on experience today. And if you have an iPhone 10, make sure to download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new feature, Find Your Fit. Find Your Fit recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that likely fit your face. The process is seamless, very cool, and only takes a few seconds. Now let's get back to the show. Our next guest is Michael Barbaro, who many of you know as the host of The Daily Podcast from The New York Times, a not-to-be-missed podcast for Brian and me. (laughs) That's true. Michael and his team take the biggest news stories and turn them into a short narrative podcast that comes out every weekday. And because he's always covering the biggest headlines, we thought he'd be the perfect person to walk us through what happened this year in the wacky world of news and politics. I started by asking Michael a very important question, if he's having fun doing the daily. Most of the time, I'm having a really good time. (laughs) Most of the time, I'm having a wonderful time. You know, making a daily show from scratch, it's all-consuming. It's a vortex. And no one tells you that when you start to make a show. And even, it's almost been two years since we started The Daily, and it turns out that it's a really powerful way of transforming the written word into, in some ways, a more resonant, emotional kind of storytelling. Right. And now, and the most flattering thing that's happened since The Daily started... There are a lot of copycats. Is there are a lot more, there are a lot more kinds of daily news shows. Uh, and that's really flattering. And I, and I, I wish them well, and I mean that, but I wish them sleep because I just don't think they know how hard it will be. Okay, Michael, we, we've got to get to the topic or the topics at hand here, which is the year in news and politics. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the biggest names. One name we didn't necessarily expect to be big this year, President George H.W. Bush. Right. He recently died, of course, age 94. Here's a clip of his son, President George W. Bush, eulogizing his father. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man. Were you surprised at how George Herbert Walker Bush was Mm -hmm. practically deified in the media? And do you think it's because, by comparison, he's such a different public figure than our current president? Mm -hmm. Yes and no. And and I want to dispute the characterization a little bit of deification because by the second day of national mourning around George Herbert Walker Bush, there there were a slew of sobering articles uh, that were pointing out all the ways in which he was this or not quite that. You know, 
what happened with AIDS under his watch? What was his relationship with race? What does it mean to be a wasp and to be really entitled? And are we in a better place now as a meritocracy than we were during the era when the Bushes came up and were guaranteed pretty much a spot at Yale and seemingly a, a spot of a governorship or a, a job in the House. Right. I was so struck by the number of people who came out to greet his train, the train that brought him to College Station, Texas, for his burial. And that instinct to just be patriotic in that moment, I think, overrides partisanship. And that is rare. And I think so many elements of his death the funeral, the presidents, all sitting in a row. It was like nostalgic even in the moment because our day-to-day with President Trump is so partisan and combative. Just the this, this simple spectacle of unification around mourning feels of a different era. And I think that's why everybody felt something there. What do you think? I think his presidency also looks a lot different now than it did in 1992 when he was defeated Somehow at the time, with a sour economy, we probably didn't appreciate enough the masterful role he played in managing the end of the Cold War Mm -hmm. and the role he played in building a lot of bipartisan accomplishments at home, plus his signal sort of failure as president, breaking his no-new-taxes pledge, in retrospect looks like an accomplishment because it took great political courage to do what was right, even though he knew it would hurt him in the next election. You know, one other figure like that who died this year, of course, was Senator John McCain. Do you think these two deaths signaled the death of the Republican establishment itself? A certain kind of a Republican establishment, for sure, yeah. And both of them existed in eras when what would become the future Republican Party was bubbling up beneath their feet. I mean, John McCain got a lot of grief for his enthusiasm for immigration reform. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was experiencing the beginning of the kind of anti-tax revolt, the the Gingrich Revolution that would come in 94. And he was kind of tamping it down, and, and he left office as it rose. It's so interesting you point out the tax pledge, because after George Herbert Walker Bush left office, Almost every Republican would be asked to literally sign a pledge that Grover Norquist would present to them, and it felt like a pledge, you know, if you didn't sign it, you weren't a real Republican, that you would never agree to raise taxes. And so, yeah, this was an era where it was conceivable that you could stand for compromise and you would be respected within your party. In addition to changing our view of the Republican establishment— I do think it hearkened to a bygone era when presidents did not tweet things about former secretaries of state and Mm -hmm. say they're dumb as a rock. I mean, I think the contrast was so intense when you looked at this patrician family Mm -hmm. that had certain mores, a lot of humility, hated to talk about himself. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the reasons that people were just craving that kind of civility And that was what I believe was being celebrated as much as George Bush's presidency itself. Completely agree. And and yet it was also an occasion to be sober and honest about the ways in which that was a crafted image, right? Because the reason why we were all talking about the Willie Horton ad that George Herbert Walker Bush put out in his winning campaign against Michael Michael Dukakis Dukakis, was because it was a a really ugly ad. And it— felt 
racist and definitely racially tinged. And, you know, it was a it was a very, very messy moment in our kind of national political dialogue to have that ad running. And I think it's important that people did talk about it because I think beneath the veneer of civility and mm -hmm. grace and sort of good manners, a lot of people said that when push came to shove, right. George Herbert Walker Bush did what he had to do politically, and right. some of it was not very pretty. Let's talk about what we learned this year about the state of Mueller's investigation, you know, especially with all of the people it's ensnared, like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn. Mm -hmm. Am I the only one who has a really hard time keeping up with all of this? Yes. No. <laughs> No, you're not. <laughs> that was a yes that meant no. That, everybody has a hard time keeping up with it. We constantly, at The Daily, we so constantly debate, like, do, oh, confusing. do we need to do another episode? And the, the answer is often yes, because no one can keep track of everything. It is so hard. So help us, as the year draws to mm -hmm. a close, where we are in terms of the investigation. There's a lot about Michael Cohen. Maybe start with him. Sure. So as we speak, Michael Cohen is about— to be Sentence. sentenced for his role in these payoffs, the, to, uh, these attempts to silence the women who claim they had sexual encounters with candidate Donald Trump. And the bigger narrative of the moment is that the special counsel went out seeking information about essentially two things, Russian interference in the election and communication between the those around the Trump campaign, and Russia. I think it's been during the process of this investigation that all these mini-investigations have spun off, and those are the ones that are hard to keep track of. In the mix of this as well is whether the president sought to obstruct justice after these investigations all began. And the reason why people like Michael Cohen get caught up in this is because of the kind of ancillary investigations that have spun off of this. I mean, one of the most astonishing things about the Mueller investigation is how often— he seems to prove that people around the president lie and lie with, with real f kind of ease as if it's, you know, kind of like essential to their nature, whether it's Paul Manafort or Michael Flynn, the president's former national security advisor and the president's campaign chairman, and then his personal lawyer. I mean, these were people that the president has entrusted huge responsibilities to, and it turns out that, that they lie. But Michael Flynn, it seems to me, you guys, has been very cooperative. That's mm -hmm. the message coming from Mueller's office. What's in store for him, and why has he behaved differently than Cohen and Manafort? I would say, assuming he's being honest, he's looking out for his own self-interest. Mm -hmm. You know, Mueller is very effective, along with some people around him who've had great experience doing this, like Andrew Weissman, at— basically saying to people, unless you are 100% cooperative, we're going to prosecute you and put you away for many, many years. And the people who are apparently cooperating for real, like Flynn, are going to get treated a hell of a lot better than the people who tried to shade the truth a little bit and kind of play both sides, like Paul Manafort, who is now staring in the face of uh, being in jail for the rest of his life. And why does the president tweet things like, Thank you. You know, no collusion. I, you know, basically claiming he's been exonerated. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he may genuinely feel relieved each time there's a court filing that he's not directly implicated in a in a way that exposes him 
to any kind of criminal charges. So there's that. There's also just the kind of incessant, impulsive need to kind of put his stamp on something. I think he also recognizes that if he says something, about 40% of the country will believe it. And so he can create this alternative universe, this alternative reality where up is down. Yeah. It's it's partially he wants to shape the narrative mm-hmm. as he's very effective in doing. But things are getting we're entering a, a very interesting and perilous phase of this all for the president because Michael Cohen is pleading guilty to conduct that the president was personally involved in. Suddenly the stakes are getting higher and it's starting to look like very much in Watergate when the, Richard Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator. And, and you're when hearing— When he said, I'm not a crook. When, when he wasn't charged, but everyone understood that he had been involved in criminal conduct or potentially criminal conduct. We're now entering a phase where, according to all of my colleagues and to the documents that were filed just a couple of days ago, the president was involved in something that those— who were also involved in are pleading guilty to a crime for, that suggests that a crime has been committed and he was involved. You can play all sorts of word games, but at the end of the day, if he were not president, would he be charged with that same crime? And I think some people believe yes. So then it becomes an interesting question of, well, what do we do with that? Can I ask you about Russian collusion, though? Because we're dealing with, obviously, Stormy Daniels and the other woman and mm-hmm. paying them money when he was a candidate. But where are we on in the collusion uh, phase of the investigation? I think there's an extraordinary amount of evidence that there was, to quote the most recent filing, a political synergy between the Russians and the Trump campaign. And what we've learned— over the last several days and in the most recent filings, is a potential motive, which is that Donald Trump wanted to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. He apparently was prepared to offer the penthouse to Vladimir Putin to get it done. And this is a project that would have made him tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And so when you look at all the actions that his campaign took to cozy up to Russia, it turns out Donald Trump had an ongoing financial motive to Mm -hmm. try to do that. The complicated question of collusion, and there really isn't, there's a lot of debate about what that word means, is it requires motivation on both sides, I believe. And, And what was the motivation of those around the president? Did they intend to solicit the political cooperation of Russia? With the sole intent of affecting the outcome of the election. Right. Or or at various moments where they're just kind of following their instinct to get dirt on an opponent or to do a business deal. So what does it all add up to? And that's why Robert Mueller very much wanted to sit down with President Trump, because there's only one way to get to someone's motives at any moment, and that's to ask them, what were your motives? It may be in this case that it's the cover-up, like in Watergate, more than the crime itself that nails the president in that lying about this, obstructing justice about this may ultimately be seen as the greater infractions here. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, you'll be doing a lot of dailies in 2019 (laughs) about the Mueller investigation. And by the way, no one thought this investigation would last through the end of the year. Let's move on to some of the other big names Mm -hmm. and big stories that really dominated the daily and headlines writ large over the last year. Mohammed bin Salman Mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia. MBS, I remember seeing sort of a a big PR campaign. He was kind of doing a dog and pony show. I'm Mm -hmm. a new kind of ruler. Look at this guy. 
And suddenly he is, you know, public enemy number one in many ways. Why did it take so long for the United States and for the citizens of this country to really take a close look at Saudi Mm -hmm. Arabia and our relationship with it? It's a great question. This all goes back to Jared Kushner as a young, pretty inexperienced advisor to the president, striking up a relationship with Mohammed bin Salman because, as we're now learning through leaked documents and investigations, the Saudi Arabian leaders, especially MBS, they understood that he was vulnerable, that they could cozy up with him. He didn't have a whole lot of baggage or deep history in the region. And they formed an alliance that ended up influencing the course of events in Saudi Arabia because once Jared Kushner decided to elevate Mohammed bin Salman, in particular with a one-on-one meal with President Trump, suddenly people back in Saudi Arabia understood, oh, this guy. He demand. He is is in a really good position here. And so that affected his trajectory back at home, we understand. He is elevated to crown prince, which is effectively the day-to-day leader of Saudi Arabia. And he has the approval, the imprimatur of the White House. So he's sitting kind of pretty. And then a series of events happen that make us question, why, why did we do that? And that, of course, was the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, this journalist who resided in the U.S. And it's had the secondary effect of focusing our attention on the U.S. role in the war in Yemen, which is a Saudi-led campaign that President Obama signed off on. President Trump continued. It's one of those extraordinary things. It's really been a house of cards, hasn't it? Yes. We weren't paying attention to any of this until this assassination. And then we looked back and tried to understand what Jared Kushner had done and where he had taken us. And why we have had such a cozy relationship with Saudi Arabia for many, many years. Right. It's a remarkable kind of moment in live history when an event like this, this assassination, forces everyone to reevaluate everything, including whether we should be involved in the war in Yemen, whether we should be selling arms to Saudi Arabia for that war. The role it has vis-a-vis Iran, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it seems like it's it opened up a huge geopolitical can right. of worms. Right. And Yemen is the worst humanitarian catastrophe in the world right now. There are literally thousands and thousands of children who are dying needlessly of Mm -hmm. starvation. And you yourself, Michael, admitted that you hadn't really been paying attention to it. And I think most people hadn't. No. I I I think all of us understood that there was a war in Yemen. We understood it was about Iran and Saudi Arabia. And And it was bad. And 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 there were bombings. And And now I think— the world's attention is is fixed on it well, in how, a way that this that 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 again is just like a a very unexpected outcome of one man's assassination. One of the reasons I think Yemen has gotten so little attention is because news organizations are too afraid to turn attention away from Donald Trump. I'm not quite sure I agree with that. It's very hard to get journalists in Yemen. It's a very hard place to report from. And yes, there's a domestic story that is pretty consuming. And I believe to the degree that our news diets are shaped by cable news and front pages, those are dominated by the president. And it was after the death of Jamal Khashoggi, the assassination of him by the Saudi government, that many front pages, including the New York Times, started to focus more on Yemen. We have a clip of President Trump talking about the Khashoggi murder. Saudi Arabia has been a great ally, but what happened is unacceptable. He later would deny what the entire intelligence community said, which is that uh, MBS either directed or at least was very aware of Mm -hmm. the assassination of Khashoggi. 
And he has signaled to the rest of the world that, you know, business as usual goes on, which is a little bit interesting because unlike in previous decades, the U.S. is no longer dependent on oil from Saudi Arabia. So it costs a lot less for us to be more independent and stand up to Saudi Arabia than it than mm-hmm. it used to. Some of my colleagues have this phrase for what President Trump does in some of these moments. They call it reading the stage directions out loud. You know, traditionally, politicians would never say the thing that really undergirds a decision. President Trump will often just say it out loud. And the thing he has said repeatedly about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is that it's financially motivated. He makes no bones about it. He doesn't she that in diplomacy and niceties, he makes very clear that in his mind, there's a Faustian bargain. Saudi Arabia buys billions of dollars of American military arms, and we have a productive economic partnership, and that overrides the moral questions about their behavior. There's a kind of virtue in that honesty, I suppose, but it's very startling to hear. Michael, speaking of moral questions, another huge story involving some big names we want to talk about is Facebook. And those names are Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. How did we get to where we are, where Facebook has become probably the most controversial technology company in America, if not the world? In some ways, it goes back to right after the 2016 election. Doesn't seem like everything goes back to the 2016 election. And when Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, said... The idea that Facebook somehow influenced the outcome of the election, that someone could hijack it or misuse it, and it could influence who won, that's crazy. And it turns out inside Facebook, his own employees, his own security officials heard him say that and said, oh, no, he may not understand the depth of what has just happened. And what had just happened, of course, was that Russians— who were maliciously intended, so that's a word. Yeah. Um, they Well, we just made it one. We made it one. They had found ways to use Facebook to influence American voters or to seek to influence American voters in a pre-systematic way and that either, in their minds, their boss didn't know about it or was deliberately misleading people. And what was going on inside Facebook was a kind of reckoning with what had really happened on this giant social media platform at the hands of people who wanted to exploit it And over time, we've now learned from the reporting of of my colleagues at the Times, the company sought to tamp down that information. They didn't want the world to know in real time, as they were learning it, just how much influence Russians had actually had with this platform. And it got to the point where those criticizing Facebook became targets of Facebook. And we now know that Sheryl Sandberg, the COO, who is who's beloved by many for her public profile, for uh, the book she wrote about encouraging women to lean in. About who, who's grief written, after her husband who's died. Who's written suddenly. very, very movingly about losing a spouse and about being thoughtful when it comes to grief, yours, others. What we learned is that people underneath Sheryl Sandberg and seemingly with her permission, had authorized opposition research into those who criticized the company, including George Soros, who is a billionaire investor known for his left-leaning positions. And so now there are all sorts of questions. Why would Facebook go after its critics like this? Why would it hire a company to do opposition research? Why isn't its instinct to share with the world immediately what Russia did on its platform? I think the bigger question is sort of like, Is this a company that started off and has, even through its development, is ultimately 
interested in bringing people together? Or is this really a company that's interested in kind of like hoovering up all our private information, using it for profit, keeping things secret, going after critics? I mean, that's not the Facebook that you and I think about when we post baby photos. Soros, or at least going after Soros, is such a fraught thing because he has become, unfairly in my view, a boogeyman on the right and used to explain all sorts of conspiracy theories, liberal victories, uh, et cetera, in a way that crosses the line into anti-Semitism. And so it may have been legitimate, given Soros's history of short-selling, to look into whether Soros had a financial stake in what he was saying about Facebook. The reason it, it, it set off so many alarm bells is this is exactly what sort of the most extreme elements on the right do, use George Soros as an excuse for everything. Brett Kavanaugh, is another huge name, mm-hmm. along with Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. They dominated the conversation for a certain period in 2018. You all approached it in a very interesting way at the Daily. Right. We did. I mean, we everyone instantly understood that this was going to divide the country kind of down the middle in the way that so many of these kind of national episodes do. And there were so many big questions brought up by this case. One was simply, what happened? And did Brett Kavanaugh do the things that he denied doing and that Dr. Blasey Ford said that he did do? And who and, do you believe? And who do you believe? And I think there was no satisfying resolution in the kind of national public conscience, conscious when it came to that because there wasn't really an investigation done by the Senate Judiciary Committee. And... And that was such a, a messy, complicated partisan process. And so everybody was left to kind of come to their own conclusions about this. And we went to Brooklyn, the Daily, to talk to a bunch of young high school girls about what had happened. And in some ways, you know, these girls were more thoughtful about it than members of the U.S. Senate because they understood what it meant to be in that phase of life. Like, obviously, high school is like a rite of passage, and you got to make mistakes and learn your way through it. But there are certain things that it's just like, like saying hateful things to certain minority groups and things like sexual misconduct. That kind of stuff follows the, the victims forever. And if it follows the victims forever, well, then you got to deal with it, too, since it's your fault. You know what I mean? I think when we look back at this year, the dueling testimony of Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, her tone, her vulnerability, his rage, his defensiveness, and ultimately some of the inconsistencies that were surfaced about how he described his behavior. Versus how other people described his Versus his classmates who described him as, as drinking much more heavily than he acknowledged. We're going to be remembering that testimony and how it contrasted with her testimony for decades. Well, I think it's not just the testimony. It's also the aftermath. The result of this hearing was Kavanaugh achieving his lifelong dream of sitting and serving on the Supreme Court. And Christine Blasey Ford, when last I checked, still couldn't go back to her home, still required 24-7 security for all the threats that she's gotten— And so the trope that, you know, she's doing this for any reason other than telling the truth rings a little bit hollow to me personally, given the costs 
that this is imposed on her life. I do think this was the moment where the Me Too movement did lose a bit of steam in the eyes of some people who are more traditional Hmm. in terms of gender and societal roles. And they saw this as going too far. And people having very, very little sympathy for the perpetrators of these crimes or incidents suddenly said, wait a second, we're not sure we can wholeheartedly embrace this moment or this movement as much as we thought. Would you agree with that? I I do agree with that because this was the moment when the Me Too movement sort of crashed into American politics, which is sort of split right down the middle. And for the half of the country that supports the Republican Party and Donald Trump, Brett Kavanaugh seemed more like the victim here than Dr. Ford. And the fact that there weren't a lot of other people who either were willing to come forward or were called to come forward to support her side of the story was used by Kavanaugh's supporters to say, how can you destroy this man's life based on the word of one person? And I think that went even beyond you guys, Donald Trump supporters. I think it was also the feeling among some older women who just thought it was a bridge too far, even if they weren't firmly in Donald Trump's camp. Let's transition to some other big moments. On Election Day, Democrats took the House of Representatives. We now know they gained 40 seats. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi is likely to become Speaker of the House. What are the consequences for politics in 2019? It means so many things. To have divided government is the difference between a a giant tax bill passing or not passing, between the possibility of investigations of the president happening or not happening, between health care being fundamentally changed in the country or not changing. And and it's a complete game changer for the second half of a presidency. Everybody remembers what the first two years of President Obama's government looked like when the House, the Senate, and the White House were controlled by Democrats. That's when the Affordable Care Act passed. And then the lights went off, and the Republicans took back control of Congress, and and basically we had paralysis. And now we're looking at a similar situation potentially uh, with President Trump. We now know that it was the biggest House popular vote victory from one party since the aftermath of Watergate, that there was an enormous swing and a huge national rebuke in the House uh, to President Trump. So, Michael, one trend we may see playing out over the course of 2019 is an economic slowdown. Mm -hmm. We've had a very long economic expansion. Mm -hmm. We're due for a a recession, if not a, a slowdown. What do you think the consequences would be if unemployment goes up, if growth slows down, if wages don't keep increasing, et cetera? I think no one wants to see a slowdown, but if there is an economic slowdown, and it feels like we're starting to see signs that there could be one, but we're not sure, that that would be very problematic for President Trump. I mean, we we talked about President George Herbert Walker Bush. The thing that happened to him that no one expected was that the second half of his presidency, which felt so triumphant, was defined by a recession. And I think it will be really interesting to see how a president who defines his success by the stock market and by the economic indicators of the country, how he will deal with a suddenly souring economy. I don't, I don't think he would deal with it very well. We've started to see him scream 
at the Federal Reserve chairman for doing something that the president didn't like on interest rates. And it's, of course, unorthodox to respond to a changing economy by yelling at the people around you because you don't like it. But if that's his response, that that could be very politically problematic because he is seen as a very firm figure when it comes to the economy. I think that's an area of of kind of, in a sense, almost unmitigated success for this president. So if it begins to change, I don't know how he will respond, and I think he will be very flustered. What about gun violence? Mm -hmm. You know, that dominated the headlines in 2018. Do you think anything is going to change? I mean, at a national level, a huge percentage, I think 92 percent, want want uh, universal background checks, mm-hmm. for example. And yet I think people are very frustrated that nothing seems to change. Do right. you see the, any movement in this area at all? I mean, I would just point to bump stocks. Remember, those were the devices that everybody seized on and seemed to agree shouldn't be on the market because they make it possible for a semi-automatic weapon to become essentially automatic. They were used in that horrible Las Vegas mass shooting, and nothing changed. Nothing happened. And this was the year, 2018, where it felt like an entire generation of millennials was activated and animated about guns and gun violence and gun control by, by the Parkland school shooting. And I think it's been really sobering for those kids to see how hard it is to make things change. And yet I don't see them being dissuaded from it. And it feels like they're going to spend the rest of their lives on this. And the question is, when will their time come, if it comes at all? Um, or will they be stymied by the the kind of the wall of, uh, of opposition that's so nestled into our political system? Earlier this year, Katie and I spoke to Ali Shee from uh, Parkland, Florida. And she said very clearly that they're in this for the long haul and that progress may come slowly. They understand that. I mean, what we may see in 2019 is the House passing some legislation that then dies in the Senate. Katie, you've pointed out that states may take greater action to combat the scourge of gun violence. And I think one thing we saw in the election is that support for gun control could be a political plus in a way that maybe it hadn't been in previous cycles. People are becoming single-issue voters Mm -hmm. on that issue, as we saw with the Lucy McBath victory in Georgia, which was a surprise to many people. And, of course, it all starts at the top with new leadership potentially in 2020 and someone who is not beholden to the NRA as President Trump is, that could be clearly a game changer, which brings us to the election. Yes. Uh, Kamala Harris has said she's going to think about it over the holidays. Mike Bloomberg visited Iowa. Uh, there's, a, what, a cast of thousands mm-hmm. who are considering <laughs> running for the Democratic nomination. How do you see that all playing out? And, um, you know, are the ideological uh, differences within the party itself going to work against whoever it is who runs against Donald Trump? Either it will make it harder for that person or it will be really clarifying and it will crown that person, whoever he or she is, because there are 20 debates going inside the Democratic Party. We can't keep up with all of them, but I mean, among among them are generational. Is Joe Biden too old to be the nominee, or is he just right? Is Elizabeth Warren too progressive, or is she just right? Um, is this party— Is Beto O'Rourke too green? Too inexperienced, exactly. Or is he 
exactly the level of excitement that people want. Like, do you have to be an office holder? Or can you be an outsider? Donald Trump was an outsider. Can the Democrats wrap their head around the idea of a celebrity candidate? The Rock. Oprah. <laughs> now that I mean, Avenatti's out. Yeah, I think that the president broke so many of the rules that you have to reevaluate the rules to a certain degree. And then you have to answer the questions that the Democrats have kind of failed to answer for many election cycles now, which is, is it a party about identity and progressive politics? Uh, is it a party that's going to rival the Republicans and President Trump around questions of economic populism? Is it going to speak to the coal workers? Can it be a party that stands for environmentalism and sustainability while being sensitive to the working class, to the to, to more traditional forms of energy, exactly to to, to the coal miner, um, or are those two things incompatible? And does it need to bet on a on a new exciting outsider, or or can it be a familiar face who stands for kind of the middle? And I mean, the reality is, it's it keeps putting off these debates. The House strategy that seemed to win this year was a message of healthcare and the economy, and it the party forestalled these essential debates about who they are, and now it can't do that anymore. It has to figure out who it is. And I think, as you say, Michael, the debate is going to be as much about the past versus the future as it is about the left versus the center. You look at the last three Democratic presidents, Obama, Clinton, Carter, they were all, to some extent, outsiders to the political establishment. They were young. Uh, they didn't have a, a ton of traditional Washington experience. Um, nominating and electing Joe Biden would be a real break from that, but Donald Trump is a break from a lot of things, so we'll see. I guess the big question is, do you go with someone who is new, exciting, charismatic, has a great message, and signals the dawn of a new era? Mm -hmm. At, but if you do that, do you risk going with someone who's not guaranteed to beat President Trump? I think that's No one's of, guaranteed to beat anybody. Right. But that's, I think, the question. Or who has, you know, do you go with someone solely because they have enough popular appeal that they'll be able to beat the president? Mm -hmm. Or do you usher in this new generation not really knowing if they're going to be able to get the job done? My advice is always the same on these things. Having covered so many presidential campaigns now is there is a process. It plays out. It works. There's primaries. I don't know why people get so agitated so early. I don't know why polls get done before people are even close to voting, but they do. I don't know why people throw things across the table, uh, you know, at family dinners when people haven't even announced candidacies. Um, but we have one full year before this primary, and I plan on not using it to think too much about the presidential election. All of us will have plenty to talk about in 2019, and the dailies will keep you as busy as ever mm -hmm. and us as informed as ever. Congratulations Thank for you. such great work for not only during 2018, but 2017 as well. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. We're big fans of the show. Big fans, as they say, Michael. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for doing our show. My pleasure. So, Katie, before we wrap our final episode of this show, 
uh, our wonderful producers and I have put together another look back, not just at this year, but at the whole run of this podcast. Uh, Let's have a listen. It all started with a trip down to D.C. in July of 2016. It feels a little like old home week for me because here we are in the Hart Senate office building. When I lived in Washington, I covered a lot of stories here, and uh, I have to say it's a beautiful building. For our first episode, we talked with then-Senator Al Franken. Give us your prediction for the fall. I, I am not a prognosticator. Uh, that's not what I do. That's not what I do. Do you think Hillary Clinton's going to win? I do. The senator was wrong about that, of course, and little did we know that just over a year later, his own political career would end. We continued obsessing about the presidential election throughout that year with people like Samantha B. Brian and I started this by saying, I can't wait till it's over. Mm-hmm. Brian said he's going to be sad when it's over. <laughs> what? I'm sick. What I can I tell you? I find you remarkable. <laughs> so you're in my camp? I'm in your camp. Nate Silver made a pretty safe prediction right before the election. There are going to be consequences to this election, win or lose. They're going to persist for for many years. And then we got together the morning after and tried to make sense of what happened with Doris Kearns Goodwin. You know, I predicted, obviously wrongly, that the morning after, people would realize what a big thing this was, that 240 years after our founding, when so many other nations have had their first female leader, we finally had a female president. We went back down to Washington to catch the last of the Obama administration with Valerie Jarrett. Welcome to the White House, Katie. Delighted to have you here. Thank you. And just as President Trump was taking office, we talked with the impersonator-in-chief. NBC, great organization. Yeah, sure, great. Katie schooled the Pod Save America guys. Jason Kander, is he the one that did the great ad where he put together the automatic weapon blindfolded? Yeah. He's a card-carrying badass. We also, you know, obviously Elizabeth Warren is like an emotional leader. I want to be a card-carrying badass. I I think you have been for a while. You just have to to apply. (laughs) We heard from New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. Listen, I think that race is really hard for us. It's hard for everybody to talk about. And I've said many times on this issue, we have made a lot of progress, but we're not finished. And we talked with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. So I'm, I'm a former mayor, and um, I had to fix stuff. Um, I couldn't use philosophy. As Fiorello LaGuardia said, there's no Republican or Democratic way to fix a pothole. You just got to fix it. But it hasn't been all politics for us. We've sat down with everyone from Tony Robbins. So we're going to feed a billion people and then an ongoing 100 million new meals per year. Can I just say I give up? I feel so lazy <laughs> and useless after just hearing that what are you answer. About a I, I, of I, I think people. we should just, this is really impressive. To Ina Garden. Who's in charge of cracking eggs? I will. Okay, I'll good. do that. So I need eight eggs. Eight eggs, okay. How's that? Excellent. We were also inspired by the strength and talent of so many women we talked to, like Ava DuVernay. Working for 13 years in film that closely gave me a set of tools that really made up for not going to film school. And Martha Stewart. And then you had this moment in your life when you were in prison. What was that like for you? I mean, was that sort of like... It was horrifying. It was horrifying, and no one, no one should have to go through that kind of indignity. We even got to take a peek or a listen inside Katie's closet with Marie Kondo, the queen of tidying up. 
Uh, so when I was 19, I went to university, and my hobby then was to clean my friends' places. And then sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it's no surprise that in these turbulent times, so many of our conversations turn back to politics and Donald Trump, like with Morning Joe and Morning Mika. He's not interested in policy. He's interested in getting the reaction from the tweet. Somebody who's still very close to me just said he loves setting the bomb off and just watching it explode. We even went across the pond with the BBC and got to bask in the Britishness with Downton Abbey creator Lord Julian Fellows. I like the servants more than the... (laughs) You know, the servants were often people's favorite characters. We dealt with big issues and challenging subjects on this show, like the Me Too movement, we talked about it with Amy Schumer. I, I identify with, with all the women in these situations. I kind of, my mind doesn't go right. Even if it's my friend, I don't go, oh, but he's a good guy. I, I think, what would it feel like to have been her, you know? And Laverne Cox. I noticed when some trans women have come forward and said that they have been sexually assaulted, there's been a different tenor in terms of the ways in which they've been believed. We reckoned with the scourge of gun violence when we talked to Ali Sheehy, a student from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. I'm going to ask the question that reporters are told not to ask, but somehow I feel is appropriate given the situation. How are you doing? Um, I think right now all of us are kind of doing the best that we can. It's getting used to our new normal that we have at our school and our community right now. We've asked the tough questions of people like Jim Comey. A friend of mine who's a very respected former federal prosecutor says the only reason not to fully inform the attorney general was that you knew you were doing something wrong and you didn't want to be stopped. I'm curious to hear your reaction to that. And we've been able to get an inside look at what happened behind the news, like with former U.S. attorney Preet Bharara. We had a discussion about whether or not we should tape the president of the United States. We decided against that. Because we, unlike Michael Cohen, his own lawyer, thought it was kind of uncool to tape the president of the United States. And speaking of an inside look, we took a deep dive into this political moment with our series on Katie's Sarah Palin interviews 10 years later. She was the canary in the mine that the party had changed, that it had become more animated by xenophobia, by nativism, by grievances, than by any single animating idea. We laughed a lot. You know, the trampoline-based workout. Right, right. That's a recurring <laughs> that theme. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> I mean, and then there's a lot I was of, just there. <laughs> learned a lot. Ice is such an underrated beauty tool. It really is. She's so anti-inflammatory, and she's so affordable, which is great. <laughs> and listen to Katie sing a lot. There's no business like show business. Okay, you got the idea. So you're he Jesus does. Christ. You're the great <laughs> Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no Summer loving had me a blast. Summer loving happened so fast. And, and I, I know, know that, that if you loved me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Through it all, my admiration and affection for Katie, pretty big to begin with, only got bigger. What a wonderful privilege it was to be on this journey with Katie and with all of you for the last two and a half years. Ah. That was so nice. Thank you all so much for putting that together. And wow, this was a really good show. 
<laughs> it actually was. <laughs> That's it, everybody, at least for now. It's our last show. I'd like to start off by thanking Stitcher Media, the company that Brian and I partnered with to produce this podcast. And a huge thank you to Gianna Palmer, who's no longer with us. Well, she's with us. She's working at Stitcher. (laughs) But she was our fearless leader throughout much of our podcast times here. And Chris Bannon, who was such a big supporter. And John Delore, who was our audio engineer at the very beginning and who helped out tremendously during our two-part Sarah Palin episodes. And Greta Cohn, who was our very first producer. Um, we also want to thank our, our current production staff, producer Emma Morgenstern, associate producer Nora Ritchie, audio engineer Jared O'Connell, who never gets the credit he deserves, and a shout-out to Brendan Burns at Earwolf and Julian Nicholson at Invisible Studios for recording the L.A. side of today's podcast. And, of course, the team over at Katie Couric Media, my assistant, Beth DeMoz, my social media maven, Julia Lewis. She obviously took Allison Bresnick's place. We mentioned Allison a lot, as you know. And Jim Brown, who helped out a lot with the booking, you all have helped the production run so smoothly, and I can't thank you enough. Jared Arnold composed our theme music. You can continue to find me on at GoldsmithB on Twitter. And even though the podcast is ending, Katie has no plans to retire from social media anytime <laughs> soon. Quite the contrary. You can find her on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and especially Instagram at Katie Couric. And Brian and I will have important, exciting news to report. So pay attention to our social media channels. We'll share with you what we're doing on those platforms. And I'd just like to say personally, thank you all so much for listening to our podcast. I have to say, you know, I've done a lot of different things throughout my career, but people who are enthusiastic about the podcast, possibly because we're coming through your little earbuds directly to your (laughs) brain, have been so supportive and enthusiastic about the work we've done here. And we can't thank you enough for really caring about the things that we care about and wanting to listen to the guests that we've been interested in. Yeah, people tell me all the time about how much they've learned on this show. Well, I've learned at least as much as they have working with Katie, working with our terrific team, interacting with our listeners. Uh, It's just been a fabulous experience start to finish. So thank you all for being part of this with us. And remember, you know, you can still listen to a lot of the episodes if you're interested, if this has piqued your interest in the podcast or you're just feeling nostalgic to hear some of your favorite episodes over again, feel free to listen and to reach out to us on social media because we'd love to continue to hear what you have to say and understand the issues you're you're interested in uh, learning more about and the people you'd like to hear from because we're not going away. We're just taking a little break. So thanks again, everyone, so much for your support. And Brian, um, you know, I'll be calling you at all hours (laughs) per usual. (laughs) Why should anything change? Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. This show is sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection, like 
turndown service, which is an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice, and it's backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Stitcher. I always told you you ought to go into politics, Katie. I think you have a great. <laughs> I said there. that to her too. Yeah, yeah. Well, well maybe <laughs> maybe between the two of us, we can talk her into it. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. Hello, Deadbeats. It's Gabby. Gabby Dunn, host of Bad With Money. I had the Bad With Money book come out in January. I'm super stoked for season four. This season, we're going back to our roots, and I'm having long conversations with amazing people and getting the big picture about money and the economy. Do you like intersectional, queer, social justice-based money podcasts? This is the only one, so get into it. Did you earn it? Do you deserve to be like a billionaire when somebody who's working as a janitor or working in Walmart or, or a you know, teacher working, or a teacher? Yeah, certainly. Or a teacher who may be working just as many hours as you, maybe just as smart as you. Like, is does that make it OK that you have so much? I get paid once a month. So my, my checking account's huge. It's like a tidal wave comes in. And then on the second, it's empty again. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're speaking my language. Bad With Money is back now for season four. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This message comes from Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.